This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And uh, we've got a great guest coming up, a longtime friend of mine, um, wonderful, wonderful woman who, well, we'll ask her, but is New Zealand's expert or, gosh, no, I'm not going to use that phrase, am I? Oh, no. We run a mile when we hear the, hear the phrase expert. No, she's done a lot of work researching welfare policy and family life in New Zealand and um, is always very accomplished with the facts of the matter and oftentimes pulling up uh, ministers, government departments, commentators on what they say because they don't have the facts. And so it's my very great pleasure to introduce Lindsay Mitchell. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, Rodney. Pleasure to be here. Yes, no, I um what what got you going in researching welfare policy? I mean it's it's sort of an odd thing to do, isn't it? Well, I'll be totally honest. Um, if I go back to I had my second child, <clears throat> a little girl who would have been about a year old, a little bit older, and um, we had that terrible incident um, which involved the child Lily Bing oh. in the wider wrapper, um, who suffered a great deal of abuse and maltreatment to the point of death. And um, she was just months difference in age from my own daughter. And mm. anybody who's a mum <laughs> can attest to when you're uh, a new mum and, well, sorry, I wasn't a new mum. She was my second child. But when you're, you know, they're young and you're feeding them and um, you're very um, sensitive to other children, you're very empathetic to them. And I just couldn't, it, it just really, really got to me that whole um, episode. And I'm going back a bit radio-wise, but Paul Henry was on the radio then. He used to do morning talkback. And um, he was very affected by it too. And I can remember one morning he was saying, you know, the whole business of, of this family who were on welfare and the the whole intergenerational business of paying people to have children who nobody really wanted to take responsibility for, which was definitely the case um, in this episode, and how, as taxpayers, we were all complicit in what had happened. And it just hit me. Uh, remind and, us, remind us, there's been so many, but just give us a broad outline of the Lily Bing case. Oh, I have to. Um, she was largely being looked after by the cousin, if I'm recalling it correctly, of the mother. And 
um, th that was the situation, and and she was she was maltreated. She was scolded. Um, there were some horrible injuries described, and there were uh, there was situations like she was being forced to be toilet trained, uh, left sitting on a toilet in the cold for hours. Uh, oh, I mean, no. you just envisage this this tiny enough. child, you know. You know? Uh, it, it was dreadful. It was a dreadful time. Um, so there, <laughs> that's what that's what sort so of Paul got Henry me going. Spark, sparked it that this little girl had not only been killed but had been abused and her short little life uh, had been made miserable by adults who normal course of events should care for their little children mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. even if they're not your little children your heart goes out to a little kid right? mm -hmm. and it shocked the nation like these things do and then something else comes up and we carry on and then again we get shocked by a shocking story but this particular story it affected you and hearing paul henry say well we're complicit because we're making that lifestyle possible yeah and allowing that abuse or sponsoring that abuse would you say mm -hmm. yeah so you um, thought what you thought what um I thought, well, how prevalent, um, sorry, Rodney, a bit of noise going on in the background there. Um, how, you know, obviously there are, there are many, many, many people on welfare, right? How prevalent amongst welfare parents was neglect and abuse. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find that out. Um, and, and having sort of worked around that and thought, look, there, there are patterns here. Um, I wanted to do something about it. I, I, wanted, I wanted other people to think about it the way that I was thinking about it. That as a society, we were setting young people up to have children that they were not able to care for, uh, not able to parent in any way because they were barely out of childhood themselves. They had often been raised in grim situations and they were primed to repeat their own childhoods. Not, and we equipped, not, equipped, to... not equipped for parenthood. And their own parents oftentimes not equipped for parenthood. No. Because, I mean, this kind of welfareism goes back many generations now. And we know it and we ignore it. And children die. But the children die at the extremes. But what about all of the other children? who were hurt and damaged in other ways, who were hurt in the womb um, through 
drugs and alcohol. And we know that there are hundreds of children um, that are born each year that are, that are <clears throat> exposed to alcohol, drugs, methamphetamine. It's all documented. And this is the, the thing that I find so abhorrent, that it's all documented. Um, but we, we really don't want to talk about it. It's over there, it's somewhere else, and yet we keep enabling it through our welfare system. So what year was that, Lindsay? Uh, well, I guess it was around 2000, 2001, around then. So you started on this research and you wanted to find out for yourself what was happening. And your thought was, well, if we can understand that, if I can understand this, I can do something about it. But more particularly, people can be made aware of what is going on and therefore put political pressure on to do something about it for the sake of the babies and the children. Correct. Yeah. When we look back, and you're, of course, so much younger than me, <laughs> but when we look back... Not a lot. <laughs> to, I don't want to romanticise the past, and I don't want to romanticise my childhood, but we're living in a very different world than the one in which we grew up in, and it's different in so many ways. But one of the big changes has been family structure. So when we were growing up, it was basically mum, dad, and three children, maybe two, maybe four, and maybe Catholic fa fa families with more children. But there was always a mum, there was always a dad. And that was the way things were. Like, it was just unquestioned, and more particularly, when I look back on it, um, there was a sequence that of life history. So you would go to school, you would get educated, you would get a trade or maybe go to university or maybe just go out and work. You'd get some money behind you. You'd get engaged. You'd get married you'd get a house and you'd start a family. There was sort of like a sequence. And nowadays we don't have that sequence. We have schoolgirls having babies. We have people dropping out of school, not getting a job, having babies. Uh, then they decide to go back to school. We had a prime minister who wasn't married and had a baby, which, you know, I find personally a very bad role model um, because if you can't commit to the person you're having a child with, how do you commit to the child? But there's been this massive change. Have you got some numbers on family structure now compared to what it was back in the day? What What's the broad thumbprint of that well, thumbnail uh, sketch? 
if you go back to 1961, and I picked that year because that was the year when uh, to the total fertility rate peaked, and it was 4.3. So that meant families were having, on average, 4.3 children. Mm -hmm. And 95.5% of those children lived with two married parents. So that, that reflects what you were saying about that was just the norm. Very few people were outside of that. Most of the people outside of that were either widows or widowers. They'd lost a partner to death. Um, but if you go fast forward now to last year, we've got, interestingly, the unmarried birth rate, um, the number of children or the percentage of children that were born to unmarried mothers last year for the first time was greater than to married. So it's just nudged up to 51%. So 51% of children are born outside of marriage. Now, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not necessarily terribly shocking because around two-thirds of those or just under two-thirds of those children are born to de facto couples. Mm. Now, and, we, and we should point out too, presumably, that we're talking patterns. So to every pattern, there'll be exceptions. And... Um, we're not being accusatory. We're just observing what has happened. Um, so we don't want anyone listening getting upset trying <laughs> to say that because you didn't get married, you're somehow wrong and you're not caring for your kids. No, and because we, 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 know know. That a lot, yes. we know that a lot of people have the children first and then they get married later or they don't yes. get married but they stay together and they yes. are committed to each other without a piece of paper that says they're married. Yeah. We I, and I, I, I think too, um, I've noticed amongst what you'd call middle class or university educated people, they say, oh, yes, well, we didn't get married, but, you know, we have a very strong relationship. We're in this de facto relationship and we, we are committed to each other and we look after our kids. And that's all true. They didn't need the piece of paper and the church ceremony and the white dress and the father giving the bride away. But they don't spend time with the underclass. They don't spend time on the mean streets where there's no marriage. And it's a whole different ball game, right? And in a funny way, that's the sort of statistics we end up looking for, the lily binks. What's going on there? So we went from 95% of children living in a two-parent house where mum and dad are married. Last year, more women had children without being married than women having children that were married. So presumably, extrapolating that out, oh, it could be a lag, whatever. What would be the children living with mum and dad now compared to that 95%, you think, or no? Oh, you mean whether they're married or not married? No, I don't mind that. It's really whether they have a mum and a dad at home. Do we know that answer? 
Like how many children uh, now, what percentage of children are living in a mum and dad household with mum and dad? So it's about, well, if, it, if you've got half and then 60% of the other half, Rodney, you're the mathematician, do that. Uh -huh. So half and 60% of the other half. Um, do we look at, what, about 70, 70, about 70%, 75%? Right? 75% are living with mum and dad? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. there's 25% don't have a mum and dad at home, but solo parent household or there's a boyfriend or girlfriend i've confused you haven't i well 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 yeah you know i mean i i write to you the... you explain it in your words without me questioning you because my question was really muddle-headed you explain what is it now it was 95 percent of families <laughs> had were married yeah what is it now We're married. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's half. It's half. It's half. Okay, because you confused yeah. me a bit because you said last oh, year. You, no, my fault. Last year, um, you said of the babies born. Last year, half were born to unmarried mothers, and the old-fashioned phrase "out of wedlock." Yeah, but a lot of those that are married will go on to separate and get divorced. Sure, right but I'm only talking, I'm, I'm, I was talking about last year. Yeah. Okay. Now, if they if they are born into a de facto relationship, the chances of the de facto relationship splitting up are much higher than a marriage splitting up. So de facto relationships are not as stable as marriages. Yes. And that is a whole host of reasons because presumably those that are getting married have maybe religious views and uh, are more conservative than those not getting. It's not like two people fall in love and they'll get married and therefore they'll stay together because they're married. Um, and because they're a de facto couple, uh, they will invariably split up. But there's a tendency there. There's a, there's a level of commitment that doesn't exist that marriage provides or an outlook that marriage provides. And what I'm saying to you is the idea that um, I'm so committed to you, I'm going to stay with you forever through sickness and health, and we're going to look after our kids together. If I don't even go to that length and start having children, that commitment doesn't exist, does it? You know, that's, that is a very minimal commitment to say that. And... Um, I'm getting myself into trouble. I feel this coming on. This is a tricky area. But you just think that if you can't be bothered to get married, then what? You know, it's like you're having children. Surely you can have a commitment for the sake of your kids. Or am I old-fashioned? Well, I, I think I think you know people make personal commitments to each other. Yes, um, and then they make. I think. A commitment in front of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you know, like when you want to do something, so you make a New Year's resolution, you say, I'll just yes. keep it to myself in case I break it. Yes. You know, when you say you're going to do something to the whole world, I think your 
psychologically making a greater commitment. That's what I wanted to say, and I didn't get it out. Wonderful. So there has been this um, decline in mums and dads and stable family structure. Have we got any understanding of what, and again, we're only talking about patterns. We know that married couples can do a very poor job at raising their children. We know that solo parents can do a fantastic job mm -hmm. at raising their children. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are patterns. So I'm not, we're not, I'm not, Lindsay and I, I'm speaking on your behalf, not critical of anyone's lifestyle mm -hmm. choices, but there's a pattern. Do we know what it means for the group of these kids growing up in what old times are called a broken household, a broken family? Well, it is quite a, I hate this word complex because the social development minister uses it all the time, but it is quite complex because so many people repartner. Um, so there's a there's this sort of um, you know a, a person who starts off on their own often, in fact, more frequently than not, doesn't stay by themselves. Yes. Um, so you've got you've got what, what the children go through is 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 maybe uh, one transition, um, two, three. The more transitions the child goes through in terms of their mother's romantic relationship, which could be a marriage, it could be just an overnight boyfriend, but the more transitions that children experience, the more adverse experiences they have. Mm. Um, and, and that shows up in data, Lindsay, or just from... Oh, yes, for sure. And, you know, you can look at the latest um, longitudinal study that's being carried out um, growing up in New Zealand, which is tracking, uh, well, it started off with around 8,000 children who were born in Manukau and, and, and the Waikato, uh, and they're tracking those children and they're looking at specifically, well, they're looking at all sorts of things, but they have um, done research into the number of transitions children go through and the effects that that has on their um, behaviour and their emotions. And they're quite marked and the correlation is quite strong. Explain their effects. Well, so you, you get children who are expressing their fears and their anger um, by acting out, by being angry when they're at preschool. Um, they have outward expression of their anger, which makes it difficult for them to get on with other children. And then they, some children have an inward expression, which is anxiety and, and, and fear. Um, uh, that's that's probably the best way that I can explain it. But of, co of course, then the effect of of, of how a, a child's well being is um, is is negatively affected. I should say. Then then that's impacting on their ability to learn, um, and and so on. And so, 
we haven't done so much of it in this country, Rodney, and I don't know why, but there is a swathe of literature out there, particularly American, which has looked at the all sorts of things like um, the correlation between um, children from broken homes and child abuse and neglect and with um, um, criminal behaviour. Even with imprisonment, you'll see amongst prisoners, um, there's a, a really strong tendency when you look at their backgrounds for them to have not been raised with two biological parents. Mm. Well, I can't imagine growing up without my mum and dad because mm. when you're a little kid, you're comforted. And it sort of takes both because your mum's a nurturing part of it and your dad's the strong part of it and you're a little boy you know a little girl but I only know of being a little boy and it was everything to you to have them there mm. having your back mm. and mm. and if one disappeared um it would be extraordinarily traumatic. We know it's traumatic if one dies, but in a funny way, it'd be worse if you lost one by choice. Well, children feel rejected. They yes. feel personally responsible sometimes for a relationship breakdown. They feel like they have been rejected, not just their mum or their dad, but that they have done something because their dad or their mum has left them. Uh, it's, it's a hell of a burden to put on a child. Very, very heavy. Mm. Um, let's go on now to welfare policy. What has been the role of wealth, welfare policy and how does welfare policy work into all of this, into the family structure and family? Because back in 1961, there was a very modest widow's pension or benefit, but a woman who left her husband, for whatever reason, he could have been beating the hell out of her and the kids. They were basically at the mercy of charity. So the DPB was introduced, I'm going to say 1974, at a guess. What effect has that had? Well, we can just go back, a, just like to go back a little bit before the DPB. Um, because when you think about the prophecy of um, Aparananata, now if you remember, he said, do not give welfare to my people because it will be bad for them. Now, he must have said that before the DPB. Yes. What he was talking about was the family benefit because the family benefit, although people will go, oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very much. Well, no, it wasn't very much. But if you had a big family and you were used to living on not very much because the, the fathers were, I don't know, farming, you know, picking up work, doing whatever they could, and they weren't getting a lot of money. So suddenly you get this family benefit coming in per child and you may have eight or nine children. It was a lot of money comparatively. Yes. And that, that's what he was talking about. Um, so it almost started before the DPB, the effect that it was having on um, 
the role of the father, let's say, because the family benefit also got paid to the mother. Mm. She had some control. She had the money. Um, so then we moving into the 60s, yes, you're right. If, if somebody wanted to leave their husband, um, they'd have to go to the court and, and try and get some money, get, get what you would call a maintenance, you know, a court-ordered maintenance from mm -hmm. the husband. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that men could be imprisoned at that time if they didn't support their children. But, of course, <clears throat> um, the standards were all sort of unravelling. Um, there was an emergency, so then there was an emergency benefit granted from about 66, 67. Mm -hmm. um, and women started to be able to get onto that, even if they hadn't managed to secure maintenance from the husband. As long as they'd gone to the court and applied for maintenance, they could then get on this emergency benefit. And just to interrupt, the demand was there. So the, 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 breakdown, yeah. the breakdown was occurring, and that created a demand, if you like, for financial support from the government. And then that financial support for the from the government reinforced uh, the demand or subsidized it or, or or paid for it. And so it became like a spiral or a vicious circle. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you say the change happened ahead of the welfare change. It was a cultural social shift that was occurring. I believe it was. Um, and that was probably driven by the beginnings, the stirrings of feminism, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, uh, uh, the, the push for women's rights, uh, which was becoming very strong in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of pressure going on to the government to provide an income for women who were not being provided for by men um, to the degree that it's quite funny because a lot of people say, oh, you know, that was um, that was a Labour policy, that DPB. In fact, it, National would have introduced it yes. if they hadn't, if they'd stayed in government. Yes. It was left to Labour to do it. But they, it, was, it was fairly um, unanimous across the parties. And, of but course... It, the reproductive pill and sex before marriage was no longer, I guess, frowned upon like yeah. it had been. Yeah. And so it was a shifting mores about yeah. um, um, st starting a relationship. Um, and no more shotgun marriages. We don't want shotgun marriages, no. you know. Um, yeah. it, it, it started to become more about the 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 freedom and the choice of the individual yes right which i'm a big fan of let's say but not at, not at the cost of children no so I, I see it as women's rights made children's rights subservient to to the women's rights yeah i think that what they wanted was understandable But children and what happened to the children and the concerns about the children got lost underneath. And so 
the and we turned our backs on adoption. That was the other thing. People didn't yeah, want why to did, Why did we turn anymore. our back on adoption? Why did adoption become a That thing? was another feminist tenet. They were absolutely adamant that no child should be taken off its birth mother. You know, that was the ultimate uh, female right to retain their birth child. And, well, I mean, it's hard to argue against it, but in some circumstances, the mother was not capable of raising mm. that child. Mm. You know, there, it, um, the, um, well, it, bra- it breaks your heart a little bit when you see in your own circle, these loving couples that can't have children. And then you see these other single people who are struggling with their child and aren't providing the care and attention that that child needs. Yeah, um, and, you know, there were they were very, very young, some of these mothers. They were very young. Um but, but because you've got to remember, I mean, girls had their babies quite young back then. I mean, yeah. more, you know, they, they had them very young. Um, but they tended to then, the, the big focus from society had always been, right, well, you know, that where's the father? He's going to be responsible. You're going to get together. You're going to stay together and you're going to look after this baby. The, the child was so important. Yes. You know, it, and it, everyone recognized that. And if you said, as a young girl, but I don't love them, the parents would say, well, tough, because you've made a baby. Yeah. Right? yeah you've, you've made you, your bed lying it. You yeah, know. you've made your baby. You've got to learn to get on for the sake of your child that at that stage isn't born. But the child's needs were paramount and people were married, oftentimes, to all intents and purposes, what became a very happy and stable marriage. Indeed, they did. Uh, And sometimes they weren't. (laughs) And sometimes they weren't. But, you know, um, uh, as as you get older, the, the ways of choosing your partner, you know, the other cultures where mum and dad choose who you'll marry. It's not that silly. Um, um, When you think about it in the long, long time. And um, if you're committed, you can make it work. And that was the attitude of the era, wasn't it? Of hundreds of years. You will make this work for the sake of the child. Yeah. Um, You were expected to sacrifice for the child. Now, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier, Rodney, and I thought, you know, there's not a lot of kudos these days for for sacrificing for a child. No. You know, no. we don't we don't make a song and dance about it. We don't give anybody a medal because of that because they sacrificed. And yet, when you go back and you look at our parents and their parents and the sacrifices they made, mm. gave up their own sometimes individual hopes and dreams to give you stability and a future. Yeah, the sacrifices are what what made us what we are. 
And that's where the feminism comes in, because I'm just trying to understand this point. Um, I'm a woman. I don't want to have to sacrifice myself uh, by giving up my child or by having to work. Um, the expectation is uh, the state, because I'm doing this thing for society, the state will provide for me so I can have my cake and eat it. And um, sacrifice isn't part of my equation. I guess I guess that's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can understand, I can absolutely understand a young woman fighting tooth and nail to keep her baby. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was possible to do if you were prepared to find a private solution, and by that I mean, for instance, back then when we had the Karatani hospitals where babies were routinely born, often single mothers would work there so that they could have their baby and they, could, after they could live there mm. for a while afterwards. Mm. Because it was all, you've got to remember too, people thought, well, we can, the state can give some assistance here, you know, for what to 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 allow the woman to have the baby, to keep the baby, move forward, become self-sufficient, or find somebody else, or whatever. But nobody expected that people would get on a benefit and stay there for ten or twenty years, and which is what happened. That's one of the one of the patterns that you've uncovered. And you have, I would suggest, single-handedly killed off the trope, which was that a woman is on average only two or three years on the mm. benefit. And I believe it was your research that showed that not to be true because you looked at it over time and you harangued anyone that would tell the lie by misusing of the statistics. So if I if a woman young woman goes on the DPB, what's the expectation of her time on the DPB? Well, if she's a young woman between sixteen and twenty four, you're probably looking at twenty years. Um, of course, you know you can that that would be your average. The um, what what they do now is they make an actuarial calculation and the Ministry of Social Development publishes the, ex, the future expected time on a benefit and it is going up. Um, I'm, I can't off the top of my head tell you what it is if they're on a single parent benefit, but across all benefits, it's around 12 years. Genius. So if you're on a benefit now, you can expect to be, the, over the rest of your working age lifetime, to spend another 12 years on the benefit. And that's going up because people are spending longer and longer in the benefit system. And the, that benefit traps you in a way, presumably, because for many young women, 
presumably if they then get married, they lose the benefit. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah. So there's if they're at the Karatani nursing home, they're incentivized to get married and um move on with their life. If they're on a benefit, they get married. They may not be financially that much better off. Um, and they lose what they used to. Mm. Would that be a fair comment? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it can work. And, you know, the being in receipt of a benefit can work in, in different ways. Um, it can discourage you from trying to move forward because it's secure. You know what you're going to get every week. The dark side of it is it can attract somebody who would quite like, you know, to just get his feet under your bed without any responsibility and he knows you've got an income and a house. Yes. You know, so you can be exploited because you're on a benefit. Um, and, and without commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, there's this great thing, too. I always remember, I think it was Tom Sowell saying, if all these professors explaining about welfare policy, and I'd say to them, how would you feel if I offered your young daughter $100,000 a year to have a baby? And the professors, without exception, would all say that would be outrageous and preposterous. And Tom Sowell explained that for his community, the black community in America, the 20,000 or 10,000 or whatever it is, a benefit is, is equivalent to the 100,000. Mm. Because the expectation of these young girls was to have large periods of time unemployed and when they were working to be working out in very low paid work mm. and the people that are looking at the policy and judging it and designing it don't understand necessarily the limited life choices that many people confront um when they're 15 16 and 17 and a benefit I mean, it's a bit like a drug. It can be very attractive to a young person. Yeah. But once it's got you, it's very, very hard to get away from. Yeah. And and the kind of related matter, I mean, what, what, what Jacinda thought the answer to child poverty was, was to simply pump more money into the low-income homes, many of whom, are on a benefit with things like the best start payment and lifting the um, family tax credits and and stopping the penalty for not naming the father if you hadn't named him and weren't getting the child support. She thought all of those things were a really good idea. Um, but when you think about the woman who's sitting there and the income is going up, and it's at already a level of the minimum wage, 
And then she has another baby and she gets another best start payment, another family tax credit. And now maybe it's taken her income up to the living wage. She's got to be a pretty exceptional person to say, I need to get a job. I need to be a role model for my kids and make sure that they see a working adult. She's got to be pretty exceptional. And what Jacinda did by putting more money into benefit-dependent households is make more benefit-dependent households. Yes, indeed. And since 2017, there have been 30,000 more children living in benefit households. 30,000 is a lot of children. And if you looked at the dollars, you'd say, oh, they've got more dollars. But what you're pointing out is that there's an impoverishment again. Not determinate, not everyone, not all benefit-dependent households, but the group, the tendency, the pattern. The pattern is for those children to be more impoverished than they would be if they had a mum and a dad, a dad who worked, and they observed parents who were in charge of their life rather than living a life of dependency. Yeah, and those children who start on benefit at birth are the ones that will stay on a benefit the longest and growing up on a benefit, and the data shows this, I shouldn't have to keep saying it, but increases their own tendency to go on to a benefit themselves. So you've got this pattern that just keeps going. We shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? Because no, you know, if if mum and dad smoke, you're likely to smoke. Um, you know, these are patterns that are ingrained culturally, and also we know that benefit dependent households aren't sprinkled. Uh, around Auckland or Christchurch or Dunedin or Wellington or rural communities, they're concentrated. Exactly. And so you have communities where benefit dependency is nothing unusual. That's right. So it's um, it's reinforcing because it's it's almost the norm. Yes. And when you walk through these communities or visit these communities, you almost feel as though you're visiting another country and it's very, very dispirited as you would expect, because if you're dependent, it's very hard to self-actualize and um, have a good life, I would suggest. Yeah, um, it's pretty um... I would say it's, I I worked for about five years in the community as a volunteer and I worked with um, beneficiary families. Um, And I was long-term with them. 
so in five, just over five years, I had five families. Um, one lady became a very dear friend and we're friends to this day. Um, when I first went to see her, her child was uh, had very bad eczema. Um, and there was a problem with um, hygiene in the house, and that would come down to things like, look, the washing machine's not working, and, and I can't afford to get it fixed, um, that sort of thing. Um, but at one point, about a year after I'd been working with her, she, she said to me, do you think I could get a job? I said, of course you could get a job. Of course you can get a job. And it dawned on me then that she was full of self-doubt um, about her capacity to do anything outside of the home. And she got a job. And she's yeah. still in that job, yeah. you know. But, um, and 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 I I would say the experience of the other volunteers I worked with was similar. Your successes are few and far between, unfortunately. And I found that the biggest impediment to um, trying to get somebody to change their behaviour um, to make their own future a bit brighter um, was, uh, you know, to, 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 to think about doing a course. I can remember taking to someone to, to um, Polytech for an interview and she went in a pyjamas. Um, she just wasn't serious. You, I could not make the girl serious. And of course, every week she had an income in her bank account. So she was always protected from herself, from protected the from consequences her of her poor behaviour and bad decisions. Always and protected. By, by turning up in her pyjamas at the Polytech, she got to keep her income. <laughs> well, um, I, I don't know. I thought, is this a new fashion or something? Is this the onesie thing? You know, but... Um, Sometimes, I have to say, sometimes I got taken for a bit of a ride and I was always a bit naive, I think, and I tried. I always wanted to see the best in the people I worked with. Um, but, yeah, some some people were, were just, you know, we'd give, them a, we'd give them a certain amount of time and then you'd have to be pulled out of there because they were, they were not, they were not, Let's say they weren't fulfilling their side of the bargain, you know. You were in there helping them. You were helping their kids. You were teaching them how to cook. You were doing the things around the house, trying to show them how to have a routine, um, you know, how to budget and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it just didn't work. It didn't work. For we're, we're, to me, the enemy was the benefit. We're all naive, aren't we, because we say we want to help people. We want to help these poor kids. Jacinda comes along, she's going to be kind, she's going to rid ourselves of child poverty, and we say, oh, great, and we tick the box, 
And then she goes off there and she grandstands, I've done this much money and I put this much money and never her money, of course, it's hardworking people's money, families, you know, families that are trying to do it the right way, it's their money. She put it in here and put it in here. And you're looking at that and the propaganda is that's child poverty fixed tick. But of course, it's systemic. It's deeper, it's more complex. And all she's done is increased, on average, tendency, not everyone, people turning up for a job interview or to further their education in their pajamas. Because that's how that money is operating within the community. Mm. Or yeah. you just yeah. you don't or, have to take life seriously, you know. Uh, or or to have another child. Does you think that happens? Oh, for sure, people have people who are already on a benefit have more children, without a doubt. Um, around twenty to twenty five percent of people on a solo parent benefit, sole parent benefit, um, will have another child on that benefit. Which and is... by, it's, a, it's, it's a horrifying statistic, 25%, one in four, and by definition, they have no established partner. <laughs> well, if they do, if they do, um, then they're committing benefit fraud. Yes. Mm. So they're actually have to keep either they haven't got a partner, they've got a sperm donor for the night or a few nights, or they're hiding someone under the bed if the authorities come round. Mm. What's it doing to young men who don't have a role in the makeup of these families? Because Traditionally, men would work and provide for their wife and children. But now, it would seem, if they are these one and four, their role is to disappear. That's actually how they provide for their family. Because if they disappear, their wife and child gets on the benefit and the best start and all the things that successive governments have provided for them, if they stay, then they probably can't provide because they don't have the skills or ability to provide for that family. So that their role, they don't have a role no. in the family. The men don't have a role. No, and you've got to remember a lot of these guys, they will have grown up in a sole parent household and they don't know what a father does. They haven't seen that. Probably their role models for men are not that hot. Because this is a shocking thing because basically, you know, young men are often terrible, you know, boys. Um, and then they get married and get a mortgage and it sort of sorts them out. <laughs> but it was always it wasn't marriage described as a, a, a civilizing yes civilizing um, force 
Yeah, I, I always thought of a mortgage doing it when you suddenly realize you've got this thing to pay off for the next 30 years. Um, so what are, these young men, uh, my goodness, what are they doing in society? Yeah, Do I, we know? No, but there's around about 100,000 males at the moment paying child support, so there's a lot of them. Um, some of them, some of them are sharing care of their children, which is a great thing. Um, but a lot of them are completely alienated from their children. Their names aren't even on their children's birth certificates. Last oh, year, last year, I think 5%, 5% of birth certificates had no father name on them. That's a lot of children. And that was a change. Take us back to that. That was a change that the this current government introduced, which was that you no longer, you were penalised previously if mm. you didn't name the father because the government would chase the father to try yeah. and get a bit of a contribution for what we used to call the DPB. So it mightn't be much. It might only be $10 a week because they're not earning much. They'd be assessed on the basis of their income, but it would be something. It wasn't like the whole amount. But then Labor came along and said what? Um, I try to think of, of really the uh, the reasoning behind why they did it. But anyway, they, 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 the penalty was described really as... Um, it was punishing well, it a was mother. Punitive. It was punitive. It was, you know, it was seen and it's as punitive. Yeah. Yeah, it's punitive. And what's it got to do with the government who the father is anyway? But the, one of the things that really annoyed me through the whole debate was um, it was proposed that look, a lot of these, a lot of these women. Um, they don't want to uh they don't want to put the name of the father down on the child's birth certificate because he's a bit of a bastard you know um they don't want him to have anything to do with the child or that's um, right it was a family violence part too, yeah and and it could even the child may even be the result of incest um it was truly shocking and yet as the law stood those women were given an exemption from the penalty anyway. You know, if you went into, and it was in the WINS handbook, you know, for the for their case managers, if anybody hinted at family violence or incest or anything like that, you back right off them. So the, that wasn't that wasn't a genuine reason for stopping the penalty. Mm. And now, so with with taking the penalty away, the mother doesn't have to name the father. So he doesn't have to pay child support because he's not on the birth certificate. So the child support doesn't offset the benefit, so the taxpayer has to pay more. And now they've decided that the where they are getting child support, it's going to go direct to the mother and it's not going to offset the benefit either. So all the time it's taxpayer can, you know, cough up a bit more, cough up a bit more. Father, maybe the father, he's not responsible. 
Let's, um... you, you feel as though those families, those men, those women, those mothers, those dads that do everything right get ignored, get abused, get heavily taxed and struggle against everything. And literally down the road, men who spray their sperm around and have babies and aren't even on their certificate, don't even acknowledge their own offspring. And women have children without regard for how they're going to provide for them, other than they'll go to the wind's office. They are the ones that the system is designed to help and assist, and that it is totally topsy-turvy to producing a good result for children and a good result for a stable, looking forward society. Mm. I mean, it's completely... And yet, politically... Nothing can be done because Labour love upping benefits because that's their voter base. And National don't dare touch the benefits because there'll be a riot. Where's my money this week? Or it's not as much as it was last week. And therefore, they have to go along with it if they're to have an easy life and make it to government? Well, to be fair to National, I had a lot of respect for Bill English because he was genuinely trying to get on top of what I've described. Mm -hmm. This group of people who make up maybe, the children make up maybe 5% of all children who are struggling and intergenerational dependency and the whole gamut. Um, with his social investment ideas, they were actually about identifying who these children were, who the families were, and getting in there early, as quickly as you could. And um, they were making inroads. It wasn't fast. Um, but they were, I mean, Paula Bennett had acknowledged and recognised that people on the DPB, as it was then, were keeping on having children, and so she brought in a rule, called it the subsequent child rule, that said, look, you're not going to avoid work testing by simply having another baby. You have another baby, your work testing at the end of that year will revert to what it was before. You will still be expected to get a job. They were trying to do some things. It seems a little bit fiddling around the edges, but they were on the right track. I'm not convinced that they will go back to that, although I I do think Luxon has talked about returning to the social investment um, philosophy and idea. Uh, But it's, I don't know, We, we just keep, we keep, moving further away from, uh, you know, call them old-fashioned ideas and standards and whatever, but, you know, if you want to put the child at the core and you really want for that child the best, 
we need to smarten up our act, you know? Mm. We, we... I, I, I have developed a very dark view of government. And, um, and I think that successive governments actually enjoy having us dependent upon them. And they can capture a lot with um, benefit dependency. They capture a whole lot of professionals with credentialism and societies that you have to belong to. And everyone finds themselves doctors, uh, business people, um, teachers, dependent on the state. And successive politicians love that because it makes them important and gives them power and gives them a voting base. And I guess I've developed this view when I saw how through the COVID pandemic, everyone could be whipped into shape, you know? The doctors, the schools, everyone, no one would speak out. And that, in a strange way, the Bill English and Paula Bennett were the exceptions to the rule of politicians who were trying to shift people away from being dependent on politicians. Whereas it seems to me everyone else is trying to create it. And of course, there's a whole bureaucratic class who are administering the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm, af I'm afraid that um, I, I love what Bill English did. I love what Paula Benefit did. But it's almost that they don't want to. It's not even about votes. It's the politicians actually love it. They love being the big, big guys and girls handing out the money. And they don't have to confront as their responsibility Lily Bank. You know, they're, they're, when Lily Bing dies and the shocking story of the abuse comes out, they call for inquiries and they call for this and it always becomes a system failure. But... She fell through the cracks. She fell through the cracks. Whereas no one buys that. That's a lie that they tell, and we know they're lying, but we just get on, and there'll be more and more lily bings because compassion requires realism and a realistic appreciation of how the world works and how people work. And you and I know that the ladies, usually ladies, that used to care for the down and out, they were bloody tough women. And if they thought you, a drunk, was gaming their free soup, they'd kick them out. And so that was sort of that tough love. But we've lost that. And it seems to me that it's uh, a failure, like you say, and Paul Henry said all those years ago, that we're all complicit 
You know what I mean? Mm. And it's hard to break out of it because you actually can't blame the mothers and the dads because they know nothing else. You know, I'm sounding like a lefty, aren't I? But, you know, there is a systemic problem. It's almost systemic racism because it congregates amongst Maori and Pacific Islanders a lot. Um, so it's systematic. And we don't put our hand up. When I say we, I'm meaning the world we, because you have. You have done something about it. You have researched it and you have raised it. But you just feel that, Oh, I can't do anything. What What do you think is going to happen with all of this welfareism and neglect and poor management and intergenerational welfare where you see these kids having kids and these kids can't even look after themselves, let alone their own child? No, we're just going to get worse and worse. So we're going to see, because, you know, you look now, we're worse than we were. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, school absenteeism is chronic. Uh, the youth violence at the moment is terrible. Uh, the gangs are growing. Um, Drugs. We can't, we can't, we've got worker shortages everywhere. I've never seen this country with this problem before. We have got over 300,000 working age people on welfare and we can't get people to work. Mm. And we, if you if we can't get outraged about that, because in the past we've always gone, oh well, it's unemployment, you know, oh it's poverty, it's there are so many jobs out there. So many jobs. You could walk into any supermarket and be working that afternoon now. Um, well, what we need, Lindsay, we're going to end up upbeat because we've got to be upbeat. Please. I won't allow you. <laughs> We're going to see, see, in a funny way, I've been down on Mr. Luxon so much, but at least he's a conservative Christian. That's the best thing about him. And I want him to actually come out as a conservative Christian, not apologize for it, say it, that's who I am. That's what I believe in. It's a jolly good thing to be. It's made my life. And I'm going to grow up here and start standing up for what's good for society, good for kids, good for mum and dads. And yes, we're going to have some tough times, but we're going to get through this and start articulating what a conservative National Party values. That's what we need from him. And let's figure out how we're going to get Mr. Luxon to mm. grow up here. And here, might, here. Be, might, might be this radio station that he realizes that there's a <laughs> lot of us. Because funnily enough, we saw this in the 80s. And we've seen this at different times, uh, war times, when there's a war on or when, you know, and funnily enough, and in, in, in the pandemic, although it was a bit, it was all back to front. But people will pull together when there's a national emergency. And, I mean, we need to recognize that there's a national emergency and we need to get a bit galvanized, a bit agitated. Mr. Luxon needs to take note. And um, we could start doing something. And my other interview today tells a wonderful story, you know, of uh, being cared for in New Zealand by complete strangers. 
But these were people who were appreciative of the help they got, not resentful of the help they got. These were people that were looking forward to a better life, not backwards. These were people that felt they can make a difference on their own uh, efforts and initiative, not that they were a hopeless case. And so I think we can turn it around, but I, I do believe that we have to actually start now. You know, we, every day that we await, as you say, a day gets it gets worse, and there will be another headline of some poor little kid who's been abused. And I think we need to take on board what you say, Lindsay, that we are complicit. Thank you. I think that's I the most powerful thing um, that you could imagine. And Paul Henry was um, very brave to say that. Because imagine if you were sitting at your morning tea circle uh, at work in the smoko room or, you know, having coffee and you're reading this dreadful headline. And oh, this is terrible. And you just look everyone in the eye and you say, yes, but we're all complicit. Because that's a very powerful observation, isn't it? Exactly. And we are. We are. Lindsay, you're an absolute legend. I've been speaking with uh, Lindsay Mitchell. We're doing this. We did this bit of a meandering drive through welfare policy and family structure and what it means. Lindsay Mitchell has been researching this for over 20 years. Uh, she's a fund of information. She's written extensively on it. She has a blog. What's your blog called, Lindsay? It's Lindsay Mitchell. Lindsay, Lindsay Mitchell.blogspot.com. A wealth of material there for anyone that there wants is. to look. Because she, anything that the government puts out, she's onto it. She keeps you updated. And it's um and it's, very, searchable. it's searchable. It's searchable and it's positive. Um, so I've been talking to Lindsay Mitchell, researcher, a wonderful, wonderful human being. Uh, I count her as a friend. I hope she doesn't mind me saying that because she's always been very kind uh, and very sweet to me over many years. Uh, and I appreciate you very much for coming on, Lindsay. Thank you, Rodney. That, that you're listening with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And boy, did we just have a real talk. And did we have some reality? It's uh, hard to keep uplifting after that. But here's the thing. What we've done, we can always undo. What we've done wrong, we can always learn to do the right thing. And what we have to do is start to understand, start to talk about it. And again, you won't hear this discussion on TV One News, read about it the New Zealand Herald or Radio New Zealand. You're going to have to be coming to Reality Check Radio to start the conversation to start to reclaim and remake what is a truly beautiful, wonderful country with truly wonderful, beautiful people, just like my guest, Lindsay Mitchell. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.